0: I'm Tom Schultz, host of Voices of Montana, an issue-oriented newsmaker radio program heard weekdays on 18 radio stations with 27 signals all across the Treasure State. Thanks for clicking on the podcast. Please subscribe and we'll do our best to keep you connected. We're also on Facebook at Voices of Montana and on the Internet at VoicesOfMontana.com, where I'd love to hear from you. Contact me at Tom at VoicesOfMontana.com. I'm really looking forward to this uh, chance. Every time we catch up with uh, Professor Rob Nadelson, Senior Fellow, Constitutional Jurisprudence at the Independence Institute, it's just a, um, a learning session. There's just so much that I think... Uh, we don't understand about our court process. Or, or maybe we understand enough, I suppose, uh, on, on a surface level. But y- you look at the ramifications of this Colorado Supreme Court decision. And, and I'll have Rob Nadelson discuss it in more detail as well. The Independence Institute is located in Colorado, I2I. That's the letter I, the number two, and the letter I.org for more information there too. Uh, and this just came out just the other day. So, Professor Nadelson, good morning, Rob. How are you? How's the family?
1: Uh, we're all great, and it's great also to be talking to Montana again, uh-huh. and with the great Tom Schultz.
0: Oh, you're you're very kind, and uh, like I say, we're we're very honored to have because. Uh, it's it's fair, I think, um, and I don't do it enough. But since 2013, you've been the most cited constitutional uh, scholar, or, or uh, one of the most cited constitutional scholars, by U.S. Supreme Court justices. And there's a there's a long list here. Sackett versus uh, the EPA. We talked about that one here on the air not that long ago. Espinoza versus the Montana Department of Revenue, a Supreme Court case, and and, and the list is here. You can go to the institute and find that. So uh, again, very much appreciate that. I know that this decision came out just the other day, and there's a lot to to go through here. You probably haven't got um, a full reading on it, a full take on it, but let's just get going. What do you think about this?
1: Well, it came out yesterday, and the decision and the dissents are over 200 pages long. Uh, um, (laughs) I hit my head yesterday, which – Many Montanans think may improve the quality of my analysis, <laughs> but it did prevent me from looking at the case last oh, night, and oh. I've been looking it over this morning. So I can give you a few preliminary impressions reserving the right to uh, change my mind as I, get, as I get further into it. You know, um, fierce anti-Trump and pro-Trump people are probably not going to like what I have to say because um, I think the court <sighs> – to cut to the chase, I think the court's decision is wrong, but I do think there are things the court got right um the um and, and so why don't we just break that out as uh, as as we proceed
0: and it was it was a four three decision right um, yes and it was and a
1: four three yeah. and and to uh to refresh people's recollection the uh the district court in denver state district court had held that Former President Trump did, in fact, engage in an insurrection, but that he was not an officer covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is the part of the Constitution that disqualifies from office those people who have engaged in insurrection. Uh, the court ruled, and I think the court's got a pretty good case, Talk about the district court now, that the president is not a covered officer. That. Members of Congress and other officers who engage in insurrection are disqualified, but the president is not mentioned, and there are reasons to believe the president is excluded. The, um, the The Colorado Supreme Court reversed on that point and said they think the president is included, that if the president engaged in insurrection, that uh, he's automatically disqualified from office. I I think one of the things that the Colorado court got wrong is that they did not, spend much of any time examining the founding era evidence on that. Now, I'm not entirely persuaded by it, but the fact is that there is a lot of evidence that the president is not covered by the 14th Amendment, that it's up to the voters to decide whether a presidential candidate should be qualified or disqualified. And I I thought that the Colorado Supreme Court, in reversing the lower court on that point, really gave short shrift to, uh, to a powerful case that was made that this doesn't apply to a presidential candidate at all.
0: What do you make of the dissent? I mean, maybe um, I've only read, um, you know, reporting on it. So there, there's going to be some picking and choosing in that regard. But um, the reporting does state that uh, the, the justices there in Colorado were all appointed by Democrats. It's very much a um, a liberal state or, I don't know, your state, your, your opinion of that, if that has an, an effect here. But it was a four to three decision. So uh, I, there's some... I think, something to peel in or look into that, into that? Yeah, uh, it is
1: true that uh, all of the justices were appointed by Democrats. It's also true that the Demo- when the Democratic governor makes the appointment, he's limited by the people that, that are forwarded to him by the Judicial Nominating Commission. So it's not like he can go out and get his own people to appoint on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is liberal. It is not... Um, Sorry if this sounds disrespectful. It is not crazy left the way the Montana Supreme Court is. Um, I mean, there are some areas where the Colorado Supreme Court I think goes overboard, um, and but uh, but it, it's not it's not the situation uh, that you see with the Montana Supreme Court at all. And I think that's reflected by the close division uh, among the justices of four to three, and the fact that the Denver court. A uh, trial judge, although a Democrat, decided ultimately the case in favor of, of President
0: Trump looking into this case again, and it 'll quickly probably go to the supreme court um, the i uh, am um, just this is one of the judges say, says there about the potential chaos wrought by an imprudent, unconstitutional, and standardless system in which each state gets to adjudicate section three disqualification cases on an ad hoc basis uh, that that statement stands out to me as uh, um, some major implication in this court case.
1: well you know here's here's one thing i think the colorado supreme court got right and i think that uh people forget this they had to be reminded of it by the u.s supreme court three years ago and um and it is this presidential elections are conducted at the state level they're not conducted at the national level there is almost no power given to congress or to or to other federal office holders over federal elections. About the only significant power they have is the right to establish a uniform day for the uh, selection of electors and for the electors themselves voting. This is a state process. And in that respect, the Colorado Supreme Court was correct. Now, this does result in a situation where you could have uh, President Trump disqualified from the ballot in one state and then... Uh, uh, Authorized in the ballot in other states, but that seems to me a good argument for the proposition that the presidency is not covered by this provision of the Fourteenth Amendment at all mm. that the pres that the offices that are disqualified the Fourteenth Amendment simply do not include the president but but that's you know unfortunately um, Republican partisans tend to talk about federalism and states' rights and so forth, except when it gores themselves. And so, when those when uh, you have statements like that saying, "Oh, it's outrageous that the that there's not one uniform federal standard," they are forgetting the fact that this is a federal republic, and that and that presidential elections fundamentally are run by run at the state level. Now that having that having been said, Tom, yeah. uh, I do tend to agree with one of the dissents that there was inadequate due process here, and I agree with that on several grounds. First, the expedited nature of the proceedings, while appropriate for a lot of election cases, simply did not give sufficient time or due process for the rather complicated question of whether President Trump engaged in insurrection. The uh, The second defect I think is even more serious, and that is the use of the January 6th committee's report as evidence the trial court used it and i think wrongly and the um the supreme court relied apparently extensively upon upon it uh the, the supreme court pointed out no, no a committee report like this is hearsay it would normally be excluded mm-hmm. the supreme court pointed out that there is an exception that the court can consider official reports even though they're hearsay the, the, the court may consider them as evidence however <laughs> There were no indications of reliability on the January sixth report. Unlike most congressional hearings, opponents were not permitted to bring witnesses. There was no cross examination. Um, Republican supporters of Trump were excluded from the committee. It was one big kangaroo court, and nothing from that from that committee report, in my view, should be admitted into evidence. If they wanted to demonstrate that President Trump engaged in insurrection. I think that what they need to do is they need to put witnesses on the stand and prove it in court because the January 6th uh, pr- procedure and the January 6th report is garbage. It should have been excluded. To, in my way of thinking, that's probably the single biggest fault in both the district court and
0: the Colorado uh, Supreme Court decisions. Yeah, not a small distinction there as well. Why, why do you presume or, or why would you um, – uh, why do you think the court – Adopts that that committee report like that.
1: I don't know. I mean, um, <laughs> uh, I, I I honestly don't know. Yeah. But I I can only speculate. You know, we increasingly increasingly live in echo chambers. We live in conservative echo chambers where we don't hear liberal views that much, and we live in liberal e- echo chambers echo chambers where we never hear conservative views. In fact, um, it's harder. It's easier for liberals to isolate themselves from conservative views than the other way around. And um, if you are a liberal Democrat and you're living in a, what is now a, a solid blue state, Colorado, it's really easy to believe that uh, that there's no case here, that there's nothing on the other side. Uh, that that. Um, uh, but let, let me give you one example of, of where the court went wrong. The court mentioned that President Trump... Um, called on his supporters to fight, to fight for their cause. And the court took that literally, like, you know, fight with weapons, even though President Trump specifically said, let's proceed patriotic and patriotically and peaceably. So, but, uh, if, if you watch the second, um, impeachment proceedings, President Trump's lawyer put together a video that showed clips of Democrat, um, office holders using the term fight 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 over and over. It is it's a standard term in political discourse. It doesn't mean go out and start bashing heads. It means to fight politically. And I think President Trump was using the term in the same way. But again, if you're living in an, in, in a in a liberal echo chamber, it's easy to believe the worst about the guy and and to assume that even though people like Nancy Pelosi use the word fight metaphorically, that that President Trump is using it literally. So that's only a speculation on my part. Mm -hmm. I can't get in the heads of these justices. I don't know them personally, uh, even though I live in Colorado and I'm admitted to the Colorado bar. Uh, And so I can't really speculate as to what their thoughts or motives are
0: beyond what I've done. If if people assume then um, that this is uh, politics – at the court level, um, I, I suppose that's a fair and justifiable assumption. Uh, given this, uh, uh, do we see more and more of this? Is is this just the epitome of politics at the at the uh, judicial level? Well, um, it depends upon what you mean by politics. Yeah. I
1: wouldn't assume that any of the justices are, you know, scheming in their chambers, <laughs> we're going to get Trump off the ballot, we'll get him off now. You know, ultimately, this isn't going to make a difference anyway in the election because the, the, the chance of President Trump carrying Colorado is precisely zero. I mean, this is a really anti-Trump state. Even many Republicans here can't, can't uh, stand him. And in 2016, the entire Colorado delegation did what they could to try to deny him the nomination. So there's no chance he's going to win this state. And so this, this is not going to make any real difference in the election other than to make President, uh, President Trump more, uh, more, more, um, uh, popular. So, but I, but I don't think they're in there sch- uh, scheming, uh, talking about how we're going to get him off the ballot. I think it has, it's a frame of reference issue. You know, if you live in the liberal, um, A bubble, which it's so easy to live in these days, it's very easy to believe from little bits of fragmented evidence that President Trump engaged in an insurrection. Um, there was a, um, there was a a point made in the case that it's indisputed that, you know, hundreds of people forced their way into the Capitol. Well, maybe, but it's not, it's not undisputed because you've got, you've got extensive video showing. That um, that people were admitted to the, into the into the capital by the capital employees. Yeah. that they didn't force their way in. Some
0: did, of course, but many many did not. The court didn't even mention that fact. Rob Nadelson, we know him, senior fellow constitutional jurisprudence at the Independence Institute, but formerly taught at the University of Montana. Professor Rob Nadelson, and also um, was sort of an anti-establishment uh, candidate in, in Montana for uh, oh gosh, I, I forget the years. Uh, ran against uh, Governor Mark Roscoe in his second term, and then also this was in primary, and, and then Judy Marks. Um, Montana's for a better government. Is that still around, by the way, Rob? I don't think Montana's for a better government is still around. You know, some people have,
1: t- <laughs> have compared me to Donald Trump uh, <laughs> in, in the role I played in in Montana. You I know, think I it's fair. As an anti- I did run as an anti-establishment candidate, and I was, you know, they, they just threw everything they possibly could at me. Including lawsuits and, uh, uh, vandalism and, uh, <laughs> mudslinging yeah. and on and on yeah. and on. Attacks on, attacks on my family or threats to my family. But we got through it. And one of the things that I am proud of is that we did succeed in, uh, making Montana more conservative. Yeah. Uh, previous to that time, you know, a lot of people think Montana years ago was a conservative state. Montana was not but Montana is and i think it's partly because of the work uh the work that we did in the, in the 1990s and early 2000s i think also some of the some of the consciousness that's been raised regarding the montana supreme court and its truly radical uh and self-serving course of decisions uh i i first started talking about that in 1999 and did so through 2002 when nobody else was now most people realize that we have a problem with, with the Montana Supreme Court. And just to tease something, if I could, Tom, I've been commissioned by the um, Frontier Institute in Howana to write a report explaining what the Montana Supreme Court has done over the last um, decade or so. And that report will be coming out probably probably in the early spring uh, it will note some areas of improvement with the Montana Supreme Court, but we will also note some continuing problems.
0: And I, I think maybe we go into this now, too. You had a recent um, article and, and the Epic Times was where I find an awful lot of these. But uh, Independence Institute, it's I2I.org for more information there, where you said uh, and I'll just give the title out here. When a court vetoes the people, it happened in Montana in
1: 1998, as you well remember, the people passed a. Constitutional initiative, which amended the, the Montana Constitution, called Constitutional Initiative 75, or CI 75 for short. Uh, people in Billings were, in fact, uh, very involved in helping to get that passed, as were people all around the state. Anyway, um, the, it, it, it passed the voters. It complied with all existing laws. The Montana Supreme Court took a case brought by a group of special interests shortly after the election. And without any district court hearing, without any factual hearing, declared CI-75 unconstitutional, even though the people had voted on it, according to rules that the court made up and applied retroactively on the election. That was the signal for uh, or or the, the first step in the Montana Supreme Court basically taking over the Montana constitutional amendment process. Then in 2017... Uh, uh, petitioners circulated a petition, got on the ballot, and the voters approved a victim's bill of rights to the Montana Constitution, a so-called Marcy's Law. This also passed by a substantial margin. In fact, more, more than CS 75. And after the election was held, the court again reversed it and then said that, um, uh, said that, uh, uh the people couldn't adopt such a measure in their Constitution. And then earlier this year, a measure was uh, introduced by some sponsors in order to control the skyrocketing property taxes in montana and that was set aside uh, by the montana supreme court finally those were all conservative initiatives all struck down uh finally a more liberal initiative was offered uh to change radically the way elections were uh are are, are carried out in montana Changing several parts of the Constitution, and yet the court upheld that one just a few days ago. So you've got a pattern of the Supreme Court deciding which constitutional amendments the people may or may not approve, which is a very dangerous situation. Uh, and that is part of a larger, uh, trend, which I will document in the, uh, in the paper of, of liberal initiatives being upheld, by, while conservative initiatives are struck down. This is a pattern that goes back 40 years, and it is almost uniform.
0: And this is where I, I look at things like this, and this is why I, I question where politics has entered, and I see this Colorado Supreme Court decision sort of like that, where they they made this decision, then they stayed the decision immediately. I suppose that was a prudent uh, step, uh, but it, it just it seems to me like they were just uh, at that point still kicking the can down the road.
1: When you compare the Colorado Supreme Court decisions and the Montana Supreme Court decisions, and both courts are liberal. It's much easier to deduce political motivation in the Montana Supreme Court decisions than in the Colorado Supreme Court decisions. Because you don't have in Colorado that kind of uniform pattern where liberal measures always get upheld and conservative measures almost always get struck down. It's much more complicated in Colorado. That having been said... And this is particularly important for people who maybe are, are are joining us now or have joined us since I made my last comments. I do think the Colorado Supreme Court was mistaken, and I think the biggest mistake that they made was in admitting the report of the of the Congressional January sixth committee as evidence. Uh, th- that that report is evidence of very little. It's highly corrupted and highly um, unreliable.
0: What do you think? Uh, going back to the Colorado case again, and it, uh, what what do you presume the Supreme Court might do with it? Um,
1: boy, you know that's anybody's guess. Um, I don't know, but of course, being a lawyer, professor, former politician, I'll nevertheless say anyway. <laughs>
0: yeah, <right. laughs>
1: Me too. I, I I think one way or another that the uh, that the Supreme Court will will rule in favor of president trump um i think there's first off a pretty good case as i mentioned before that the disqualification portion of the 14th amendment which the plaintiffs are relying on simply does not apply to the president the uh, trial court in this case considered the evidence very seriously and agreed that it does not apply to the president um the uh, I thought that the Supreme Court just dismissed the evidence or did not give it serious consideration. I think the U.S. Supreme Court will give it more consideration. I don't think it's a slam dunk either way, but right. I think it's possible that the Supreme Court will rule that the 14th Amendment Disqualification Clause does not apply to the president. There is also a huge due process problem generally yeah. with the admission of the January 6th report as evidence and with the... With the speed of the proceedings, one of the dissenters in the Colorado court case mentions this, that what you're saying is that you're saying to a man he may never run for any office again in his entire life unless, two, unless two-thirds of Congress uh, uh, decides otherwise. That is a really serious sentence. It's like a criminal sentence. And it's not something that should have been decided in a five-day trial and a, and a proceeding lasting a few weeks, especially given the complicated question of what an insurrection is and what President Trump's role was or wasn't. So I agree that while while I think that the plaintiffs in this case did comply with the Colorado statute, I think applying that that expedited procedure in the Colorado statute to this case uh, is a denial of due process. And I think that I think that, um, I think that uh, the Supreme Court may very well agree with
0: that. With Rob Nadelson, Professor Rob Nadelson, former University of Montana professor, actually uh, taught uh, school, I think, at three different universities, constitutional law, constitutional history, uh, noted author as well. Gosh, I don't have it all in front of me here, Rob, and I, I apologize for that. What's the name of, uh, of your book, The Constitution, what it really says or something like to that effect? I've got two books. Uh, well, I've numbered more than two, right. but
1: <laughs> the two books that might interest people would be, first, the original Constitution, what it actually said and meant, uh, and then um, a book on the amendment process called the Law of Article Five. Yes. Um, that's, a more, that's a more technical one. They're both available on Amazon, and the original Constitution book is available at barnesandnoble.com as well.
0: What's it like to have? And I think I asked this question, but um, you've been your research has been cited 39 times in 11 separate U.S. Supreme Court cases. Uh, you got you got to get it right to to have the U.S. Supreme Court uh, mention your name in a document like that.
1: Well, that's one reason, Tom. I was so cautious at the beginning of this show. When you started asking me about the Trump disqualification case to say that, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, I would had just an hour to go through a 200 page opinion. And please uh, remember that I, I can change my mind. <laughs>
0: These are first reflections. There's a couple of things. I noted uh, some some new publications, the false doctrine of inherent sovereign authority. I'm going to look into that. But there was one here that um, is, is a pending publication that talks about states having war powers and then as we see what uh, the governor of texas is doing and enacting to try and counter an open border as he sees it um i think it's it's a, a pertinent what what are the states war powers
1: well you know most people think that the power to wage war is exclusively a federal responsibility that states have no war powers uh but that's not true and if you read the constitution you'll see that the states retain the ability to fight what international law scholars call defensive wars. States have the right to battle insurrection. They've got a right to defend themselves against invasion. So the situation at the border um, led a co-author and I to ask the question, well, exactly what does it mean that a state can fight defensive war? And is this situation at the border really an invasion as the constitution uses the term? Well, uh, We wrote this article, it's peer-reviewed, it will appear in the British Journal of American Legal Studies out of the University of Birmingham in England, although to be freely available in the United States. In fact, I'll post it on the Independence Institute website when it's published. Um, And what we found is that the state power to wage war is actually quite extensive, that what is going on at the border in large uh, degree is an invasion and that uh, Texas, Arizona, and other border states would be justified in doing a good deal more than they're doing, including, get this, fighting the cartels and even making a preemptive attacks into Mexico. Mm. Now, that might not be advisable to make preemptive attacks into Mexico, but they seem to have the constitutional power to do that. And that's all laid out, and it's copiously supported with founding era evidence and also with uh, material from Supreme Court
0: cases and other subsequent evidence so that that um, that authority has been challenged in the past or used in the past or well you know
1: <laughs> one reason our article is so unique is that there's been really very little writing yeah. on the subject, and I think that 's because the states generally have not exercised their defensive war powers they simply looked looked to the feds. But now we're facing a a pretty unique situation where we literally have an invasion at the Southern border. And I'm using that expression the way the founders would use it. I'm not making it up. Okay. We literally have an invasion at at the Southern border and we have a federal government that refuses to repel that invasion. And so this is an almost unique situation where the states have to use war powers that they generally have not used in the past. Um, for example, the state militia. Uh, the state militia uh, uh, consists in part of the national guard, and the federal government could na- uh, nationalize the federal guard to a significant degree. But states could actually institute a draft. Texas Governor Abbott and the legislature could say, "We're going to have con- a selective service in the state of Texas. We're going to sign up for the Texas armed forces, and we're going to repel the invasion." Again. Whether they should do that or not, that's a policy question. But they do have the constitutional right to do that if they choose.
0: Well, stay tuned, right, because um, I, I think they're setting up for that, and it would be interesting to see um, how that plays out. Again, Rob Nadelson is with us, law, political um, analyst, but also um, a humanist, Rob, um, and I appreciate your writings. I know maybe not everybody knows, but I, I know you have um, a deep connection to this country of Israel, and, of course, the... Uh, Jewish faith wrote about the October seventh um, terrorist attack, and I, I keep I keep focused on that. I keep learning more and more about that. Uh, it was very very horrendous. Uh, just want to open it up to your thoughts on that, Rob.
1: Well, first let me clarify uh, my position. I'm not a humanist, which I think is the word you just used. Okay. Traditionally, that means atheists. I deeply believe in God. Okay. I'm Jewish. Um, <laughs> I've only been to Israel once in my life, and that was many, many years ago. What Hamas did at the border is, was, of course, horrific. It was worse than barbaric. I think most barbarian tribes would not do what they did. Um, was savage is a better word. It is absolutely inexcusable. I, for all the horror, I think we've got our own horror in this country, too, and what we've seen coming out of the university campuses in, in support for, the, for these actions. Um, this, by the way, didn't surprise me. As someone who spent 25 years full-time in academia and another six years part-time, I've seen this kind of hate, uh, far-left, woke, progressive hate, uh, gestating for a very long time. And so it didn't surprise me at all that it came spewing out of the universities. I wrote a four-episode or four-installment, a series on what's wrong with our universities and how to fix it. It was originally published in the Epic Times. It's now available at independenceinstitute.org. Go to the Constitution page if you want to read it, and it explains some of the factors that caused this huge, um, this this outpouring of hate. Uh, and the anti-Semitism that we've seen uh, coming out of our universities. We have a serious problem. And by the way, Montana universities are not exempt from this stuff.
0: What are some, just a handful of those recommendations?
1: Well, one of the recommendations I have, and the biggest and most important one, and I think many Montanans would agree with me, but it's a very difficult one to implement, and that is the federal government should have no role in higher education, except in the District of Columbia, federal territories, and maybe some defense contracts. Federal money and federal regulations have helped create this uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion poison that we're seeing go- going through the universities. Uh, they've created this huge university bureaucracy. They've, they've created a mass of uh, students at universities who really probably, it's not in their best interest to be there uh un, unsupportable debt through the student loan program uh, and all and a uh, diversion of scarce resources into stupid politically correct projects that should be devoted to real scholarship the federal government has simply got to be we've simply got to get it out of education they've helped foster this mess um, also um I this is something I've been advocating for a long time I think we're where feasible higher education uh, units, uh, state units should be privatized. I think that uh, governance should be down at the campus level. I think regents, members of the board of regents who think their primary responsibility is defending the university bureaucracy uh, should be fired or at least should be told in no uncertain terms. Their responsibility is to represent the people and to make sure the university system serves the public and their job is not to defend the university bureaucracy. Uh, and, then, then, and then there are uh, a number of others, and one important one is simply uh, for officials to enforce the law on, universe, on university campuses uh, just like they enforce it elsewhere. Too often we see university campuses given a pass and allowed to uh, suffer a degree of lawlessness that would not be permitted anywhere else in society.
0: Rob Nadelson, once again, I'm, uh, one more question, Rob, uh, and, and this goes off an article here uh, that that you penned. This was going to be in November, again, with Epic Times. Why? I still doubt the 2020 election is the headline there. I'm not sure if you wrote that. The uh, editors may have done that. But 60 years of political experience have taught me that secular leftists, unlike most traditional conservatives and liberals, often don't play by the rules. I started this conversation with... Uh, talking about we're hearing an awful lot about a hill to die on, so to speak, uh, whether this is it or whether it's abortion or education maybe may that. Uh, but um, I don't think that we can downplay the importance of cleaning up or at least giving confidence back to the American people that our elections are secure and safe. It's extremely
1: important, but you have a lot of people in entrenched positions of power that um, that oppose measures, that would protect our elections you know um here in colorado there was recently a democratic state convention and for you to get into the democratic state convention and vote guess what you had to show a picture id but those same people oppose the use of a picture id at the polls now what what possible serious reason could you have for not wanting voters to show an id other than that you you want to corrupt elections. Really. I mean, anybody can get an ID. You don't have to spend a lot of money. You don't have to have a driver's license, for example. There are all kinds of ways to get it, get an identification. But we have people who want to be able to ma- manipulate elections. Now, I don't, I should make clear in the article, I, I don't make any judgments as to whether President Trump won the 2020 election or whether President Biden won the the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. I think historians will write that story, uh, but there is certainly plenty of evidence that the election was corrupted in various ways. In some ways, Tom, that are absolutely undeniable. In fact, circling back to this latest opinion by the uh, Colorado Supreme Court, one of the uh, over and over again, the Colorado Supreme Court emphasizes at, to show that President Trump exe- engaged in insurrection. That President Trump said over and over again he thought the election was fraudulent or wrong or, or, or there were other problems with it. Well, I, I'm sorry, Colorado Supreme Court, but he very well could have honestly believed that because I believe, uh, and other observers uh, who are not necessarily particularly Trump fans, believe that there were significant problems in that election, including a very large part of the American people. So um, I'm unwilling to get on the... On the on the on the train, mm-hmm. uh, which says, you know, um, the, the election was the cleanest in history. And we absolutely know who won, because, frankly, we don't. We still don't know who really won the 1960 election. <laughs> and we've not had the kind of investigation of the 2020 election that we've had of the 1960 election.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and, and you noted that in your article, too. Historians will eventually write that full story. But uh, the election tells us something about the civic virus that now affects uh, the United States. And so it's very, right. very, very and that, important.
1: And that was the that was the, the changing of the rules. And again, this isn't me speaking. Time magazine, right after the election came out, very anti-Trump, very liberal publication. Time magazine came out with an article saying that a lot of the rules were changed, that the flow of information was 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 controlled in a way to help the Democrats, basically. Um and one of the one of the examples I use, and it actually relates to something I said earlier. Presidential elections under our constitutional system are run almost entirely at the state level, but the Congress is given the power to designate one single uniform day by which the presidential electors vote, and a, a, a uniform time in which we vote for the presidential electors. Federal law says we vote for the presidential electors. On the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, that federal law was widely disregarded throughout the country through the mass use of mail-in ballots, voting over a period as long as two months. That is, it was absolutely illegal, and I would argue unconstitutional, and it almost certainly changed the election results in some states.
0: Well, he's from Denver now, Independence Institute, but he's still Montana's, Rob Nadelson. Yes. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, And I'm looking you know, have a Merry Christmas, uh, a happy holiday season for you and your family. And we look forward to, well, uh, the work you're doing with the Frontier Institute. You'll be back on that, too. And, again, uh, more here is just uh, very valuable to us, Rob. Thank you so much. Thank you,
1: Tom. Merry Christmas. And I'll be back back in Montana in January.
0: Thanks again for joining us for the podcast. And join us daily Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. for more Voices of Montana on local stations all across Montana.